Our Old Testament lesson this evening comes from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 58, verses 1 through 12. Hear now the word of the Lord. Shout out, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Announce to my people their rebellion, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet day after day they seek me and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that practiced righteousness and did not forsake the ordinances of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why do we fast but do not see you? Why do we humble ourselves but you do not notice? Look, you serve your own interests on your fast day and oppress all your workers. Look, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to strike with a wicked fist. Such fasting as you do today will not make your voice heard on high. Is, su is such the fast that I choose a day to humble oneself? Is it to bow down the head like a bulrush and to lie in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin, then your light shall break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help, and he will say, Here I am. If you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil, if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness, and your gloom be like the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually, and satisfy your needs in parched places, and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters never fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach." the restorer of the streets to live in. This is the word of God for us, the people of God, and together we say, thanks be to God. Amen. Our New Testament lesson this evening comes from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 6, verses 1 through 6 and 16 through 21. Hear now the word of the Lord. Beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them. For then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. So whenever you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be praised by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your alms may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And whenever you fast, do not look dismal like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces as to show others that they are fasting. 
Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that your fasting may be seen not by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. And together we say, thanks be to God. Ash Wednesday is an inside-out act of worship. And uh, what I mean is on this day, we come before God recognizing our humanity, repenting of our sins, and remembering who we are and who we can be, taking an inward look at ourselves. But this day pushes us on into a special season in the life of the church, a season called Lent, in which we are challenged to become radically different people than who we might have started this season being. Ash Wednesday calls us to look inwardly at ourselves and then move outwardly to be the best that we can be as we are called by God. Lent began many, many centuries ago uh, as a time of preparation for new believers. So the early church had this practice that Easter Sunday was the great baptism, the great day of welcoming in all new believers into the life of the church, uh, into full participation where believers would then be able to partake in their first holy communion. But this was not just an everyday ordeal. This was a life commitment the early church understood that if you were going to participate in the full life of the church, it wasn't something that you just did on Sundays. It was something that you actually lived out every single moment of your existence. And so, not taking this lightly, what the church did is instituted a period of preparation. Forty days and nights of fasting, of reflection, for a person to prepare themselves for this lifestyle change. This was your way out, right? If you, if you saw that the church was going to be that group that you were a part of, and they were going to be doing hard stuff, and it's supposed to be hard stuff that transforms the world, and you didn't want to be a part of that, then great, go ahead, shoo. Go do something else with your lives. But if you wanted to be in the church, then you had to make a full life commitment. And you had to prove that you were willing to uh, be a part of this commitment through these 40 days and 40 nights of fasting and preparation. But it wasn't just to prove that you were ready for it. It was to actually make yourself ready for it. And so, out of this, we get our own practice of Lent, but Lent kicks off with a very uh, important day, Ash Wednesday. And now here's the thing that you need to understand. Ash Wednesday was not brought about as a response to Mardi Gras. 
It wasn't like, oh yeah, you know, we have this great day of, of gluttony and debauchery and now we need to go to church and ask for forgiveness because we messed up real bad. Uh, no, 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 no. Uh, Mardi Gras came later. Uh, Mardi Gras was actually a response to Ash Wednesday when everybody knew that they were about to be fasting and they said, okay, we got to get rid of all of the horrible stuff in our lives. Let's do it all in one day. Or if you live in Mobile, let's uh, spread it out over several months and see what happens. Uh, but Ash Wednesday was the moment to kick off this season of preparation. And we do so with a very unusual act. Ashes. I mean, anybody who hasn't been a part of the church before would see something like what we're going through this evening as horribly weird. I'm going to get a little bit, uh, smudge of dirt on your forehead or, your or the back of your hand, and, uh, and we're going to call it an evening. Uh, why? These ashes have a long-standing uh, history, heritage even, in the uh, life of ancient Near Eastern civilizations, particularly the one from which our faith comes out of, the Jewish culture. Uh, they used ashes to represent penitence, to acknowledge humility. And ashes... Uh, were used, sometimes dust, but the same Hebrew word is kind of interchangeable for dust, dust or ashes. But it was meant to symbolize uh, that we have been brought low all the way to the ground. Brought low, humbly presenting ourselves before God as an act of this humility in which we subject ourselves to the transformation of God in our lives across these 40 days because that's what these 40 days are doing, preparing us for the day of Easter in which we declare the risen Lord as our Savior for our lifelong commitment. But this, day, this, this time of, of preparation is acknowledging that transformation is coming. And this kind of transformation, it's not one that's forced upon us. Instead, God gives us the opportunity to choose change. How silly of God. Doesn't God understand that we don't like change? And God is giving us the opportunity to choose change? Why would we choose change? It's a complicated thing, right? We as a species are fairly resistant to change. And if you need any kind of proof, consider the last time you heard the expression, back in my day. Or, we've never done it that way before. If you've ever been in a church for more than a day, you've definitely heard one of those expressions. Change is complicated. We don't really like change. We prefer the things that we're familiar with, the things that we've grown accustomed to and comfortable with. Uh, it's, in fact, so complicated that in the world of psychology, change has been broken down into a five-step conundrum. And each of these five steps has its own uh, really horrible, complicated, weird process that a person has to go through to attend to certain needs before they're ready to even change. This is called the trans-theoretical model of behavioral change, or simply the five-step model. And these five steps, or five stages, are as follows. I expect you to remember each and every one of those. There will be a quiz later. That's what I was told in class, at least. Pre-contemplation, contemplation, Preparation, action, and maintenance. 
five steps. Now, if you don't know what those stages mean, that's too bad. I'm just kidding, I'll explain. <laughs> because it's important to understand what change looks like for us on this evening. The first stage, pre-contemplation, is when an individual fails to see their behavior as an issue. There's nothing wrong with it, right? Others in their life might be telling them that they need to change, but they don't really agree or don't have any intention of making a change. This is the majority of Christians in the world. My life is perfectly fine. I'm good. I don't need to make any kind of change. Even though, you know, the Bible might be saying, hey, go help out that person who's in need. Even though Jesus might be saying, you know, love your neighbors. God, think I'm good. I don't need to change. Stage two is contemplation which is when an individual starts to become aware of the problem, but is overall ambivalent about making a change. They perceive the pros and cons of changing as roughly equal and really don't have any commitment to change. This is where most Christians, this is about as far as most Christians get, in which we see that, oh, there actually is a problem or a need in our world. Oh, I actually might be contributing to it. Bummer. I don't really care about making any difference. If I have to go help this person in need, it might be that I'm giving up the $5 in my pocket, and uh, I'd rather keep that $5. The benefit doesn't really outweigh uh, the sacrifice, so I'm good. There's a problem, sure, but I'm good. Stage three is where things start to get interesting. Preparation, which is characterized by making a commitment to change. An individual takes, uh, intends to take some kind of action soon and may already be making small actions. This is really exciting for a pastor to see. Oh, Christians are actually starting to do something with their faith. Oh, their faith isn't just something they say they have. It's actually something they live out. Wow, how fascinating. We're actually going to do something that Jesus says. We'll get there. Stage four. I would love to see a lot more of this one. Action. Action has individuals modify their problem behavior and make the change. In this stage, there is a strong commitment to change, and the change is intentional, which is that it is self-directed rather than imposed by others. Nobody's making me change. I want to change because I see what a difference it can make. I see how this makes my life better, the lives of others better. I see how this is the proper direction of my life. And you would think it would stop there. But as anybody who's ever made a New Year's resolution knows, by about week two, who cares about that resolution anymore? I wanted to change two weeks ago, but we're two weeks in and that diet is hard, that exercise is no fun, yada, yada, yada. So there's a fifth stage, maintenance. Maintenance is where individuals sustain their behavioral change indefinitely. Can you imagine that, indefinitely making a change? During this stage, the focus is on avoiding relapse and backsliding, because that does happen anytime we make a change, and fully integrating the behavioral change into a person's life. Now, why am I giving you a psychology lesson on this Ash Wednesday? Because it's important to understand what this night is all about. Preparation, right? preparing to make that change. We're at stage three this evening, y'all. We're just going to go ahead and skip past the first two and go ahead and acknowledge our mortality, acknowledge our sin, acknowledge that God is calling us to a transformed life. 
this evening begins, that preparation. And by the time we hit Easter, we're going to be in action all the way. And by the time we hit Pentecost, you better believe, maintenance for life. But did you notice the key moment in these five stages? It's a point in which a person actually wants the change and is not a result of someone else telling them to do it. That's because change, at least healthy change, comes from within. I don't know about you, but I have a problem with authority, uh, any kind of authority. And so if somebody's telling me I need to change, I'm going to do the exact opposite of what they're telling me to do because that person is clearly not intelligent because they're trying to tell me what to do. And don't they know that my job is telling other people what to do? I don't like authority. So if any change is going to happen in this life, it's got to come from within. That's how change solidifies. That's how change actually means something. Unfortunately, for us at least, we tend to prefer the easy way far too often. And we would prefer that people would at least think we've changed when we actually haven't. This is what our two passages this evening speak to. Matthew addresses what I'll call for the evening outward piety. Jesus, in this uh, moment here, is calling out the hypocrites. Ooh, that's not a word that Christians like to hear because we know that we identify with that word far too often than we would like to admit. But these hypocrites, these are the ones that make a big deal about their spiritual lives. And I don't know if Jesus is being dramatic or if he's actually seeing this stuff taking place, but he starts by describing those who are giving, those who are generous people. And you know what Jesus sees or at least tells people is happening whenever people are being generous? They have a trumpet processional. I'm going to the offering plate now. Everybody look, big check coming through. Big check going into the offering plate. Did you see it? Okay, big check. Amen. Two, prayers. Apparently Jesus is seeing people, and, and you know these people, if, if we see them in our own city, we automatically have our own assumptions about these people. But Jesus is seeing the people who are standing on the street corner praying out loud. Oh God, hear my prayers on the street corner. And if anybody else is around and hears them, just know that I'm a better person than you. Right. And then, lastly, uh, Jesus mentions fasting. Which, this is a, a practice that we have unfortunately given up on in the life of the church. Uh, we'll talk about it during the season of Lent, but that's about it. <laughs> and, and you know that's about it because everybody starts asking the same question around this time. What are you giving up for Lent? That's like a very odd question. That's kind of between me and Jesus, according to Matthew at least. But okay, we can talk about it. But that's really the only time that we care about fasting at all. Even though this is actually a very healthy practice. Uh, Science-backed healthy practice. I read an article one time, yada, yada, yada. Uh, <laughs> 
But fasting actually is a very important spiritual discipline that we've given up on. And Jesus calls out the people who have made it way too big of a deal. Of course, we don't really know these people too well, but we can guess a little bit about what they're like. They're the people who, uh, who uh, what's it called? Somebody who uses makeup. Contouring. Yes? Perfect. Contour. They, they contour their faces to look decrepit and to look like they're, uh, you know, actually their bodies are breaking down because they're fasting so hard. I have given up so much food, you wouldn't believe it. Uh, the, these, this kind of fasting. Uh, yeah, we don't really have that in our society all that much, although that would be very interesting to see more of. Jesus in, in this passage in Matthew is calling out people for their outward piety. He's saying, you're, you're literally doing this for, for yourself. Do you not see the pride that's inherent in all of this? Do you not see how you're, oh, the only reward that you're getting out of this is the attention of others? That's called histrionic personality disorder. It's a real thing, by the way. Uh, it's very challenging, uh, but that's what it is. Uh, very dramatic attention-seeking behavior for your own benefit and not to actually make anything real happen in the world. So Jesus calls him out. But he wasn't the first to do so. Isaiah was doing the very same thing in his day about five, six hundred years, uh, five to six hundred years before Jesus. And Isaiah, while, while Jesus in Matthew is calling out outward piety, Isaiah is calling out what for the evening we'll refer to as inward justice, which might sound very redundant. That's because it is. But lo and behold, these people are practicing that. Hear these, hear these words. Uh, as uh, People are crying out to God, Why do we fast but you do not see? Why humble ourselves but you do not notice? Look, God, at all the suffering that I'm doing for you. Why don't you answer my prayers? Inner justice. We feel like we have a right to God's response because we're living the good life. We feel like God showing up in our lives is the just response because we're doing everything that the book says to do. And you know what? Do <laughs> you know what God says in response? Look. You serve your own interests and depress all your workers. Don't you get it? Your inner justice isn't serving anybody. It's actually increasing your own anxiety levels. No, no, no. Instead, what God calls out through the prophet Isaiah is that what matters is justice that transforms the world. Verses 6 and 7, Is not this the fast that I choose? to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked to cover them and not hide yourselves from your own kin? God says, is not this the fast that I choose? Meanwhile, the people are so concerned with, we're doing everything right by the book, why won't you show up, God? God says, why won't you take care of the people around you? Outward piety is meaningless to God, and inward justice is just an insult. 
God works through our inner piety to produce outer justice. God transforms from the inside out. Why? Because God understands how the five stages of change work. You know, it's the whole free will conundrum. We have to choose change for ourselves. If you know the issue, you don't try to change the world around it, you address the issue. Right? How silly if you have one simple thing that you could fix and you end up changing everything. Do you know there are auto manufacturers that do this? By the way, they'll rebuild an entire car around a single piece that they want to make work. Absolutely insane. No, 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 you fix the issue. And if we are the ones who are causing so much hardship in the world, and we definitely are, that's what humans do, it's not our environment that needs to change, it's us. And we change from the inside out. But wait, doesn't God want to change the world? Don't we need to be changing the world? Yes, but when we say the world, we're referring to kind of the same thing that John 3.16 is referring to. For God so loved the world, yeah, all of humanity. But the way that God transforms the world is from the inside out. And do you know who's on the inside? We are. As we grow in our faith, we act through our faith. A person filled with the love of Christ cannot sit idly by while their neighbors suffer. So, if we want to see change happen in the world, it has to start with us. Or, perhaps it was more eloquently said by the late king of pop, Michael Jackson, who sang, I'm starting with the man in the mirror. I'm asking him to change his ways. And no message could have been any clearer. If you want to make the world a better place, take a look at yourself and then make a change. Ah, oh, what a prophet. So my Lenten challenge for each and every one of us, let inner piety result in outer justice. It's an inside-out kind of change. Ash Wednesday is an inside-out act of worship that calls us to reckon with our own internal world as we prepare to transform the world outside of us. And as we enter into the season of Lent, we're going to be approaching it through the mentality of inside-out. Each of the sermons throughout the season of Lent will be focusing on this theme and what it means to be transformed for, for the glory of God. And so, as probably a really silly moment of reflection. Um, Jenny, may I borrow your piano? Absolutely. Thank you. This was a decision I made about two hours ago, and I probably should have asked Jenny and Lauren to do this much more beautifully than I ever could. I'm happy to know it's my piano. Oh, sure. You can take it home with you if you like. <laughs> Good luck getting it out of the pit. That's right. <laughs> Uh, this is an oldie but goodie, and I say oldie for people in my generation, it's an oldie. Let's see what we can do here. A thousand times I've failed, still your mercy remains. And should I stumble again, I'm caught in your grace everlasting. Your light will shine when all else fades, never ending. 
Your glory goes beyond all fame. Your will above all else, my purpose remains. The art of losing myself in bringing you praise everlasting. Your light will shine when all else fades, never ending. Your glory goes beyond all fame. My heart and my soul, I give you control. Consume me from the inside out, Lord. Let justice and praise become my embrace To love you from the inside out Everlasting, your light will shine When all else fades, never ending Your glory goes beyond all fame And the cry of my heart is to bring you praise from the inside out, Lord, my soul cries out from the inside out, Lord, my soul cries out. My heart and my soul, I give you control. Consume me from the inside out, Lord. Let justice and praise become my embrace to love you from the inside out. Something like that. Let us pray.